Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. My guest this week is Michael Alago. You may know him from the documentary, Who the Fuck is This Guy? He is also the author of I Am Michael Alago. He is very uh, famous, I guess, in the A&R scene in the music industry, um, most notably for signing Metallica, pulling them off of Megaforce Records and signing them to Electra Records. He is also uh, responsible for signing a band that changed my life, The Misfits, to Geffen Records for their second era, their Mark II lineup, I guess. Trigger warning, we talk about sobriety, alcoholism, um, we talk about um, drug addiction, we talk about his battle with HIV, and we talk about his um, battles with AIDS. We actually discover in our conversation that we've been at two of the same gigs together, which is very strange. The rest is a great freewheeling chat. I really enjoyed my time speaking to Michael. I think you guys are going to absolutely love him. He's very entertaining. He's very charismatic. Um, it's a great pod. So without further ado, here it is. This is Michael Alago on The Giant Pod. Enjoy. How are you doing, man? Are you cool? Oh, pretty good, thank you. You know, it's a crazy world we live in. Uh, everybody thought that 2021 might be a little different than 2020. Hasn't happened yet, really. You know, since this pandemic, I've been home most of the time. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the um, the the sort of the lot. Like last year, I couldn't tell you. Last year, there was some life events that happened, but uh, which I, I really won't, I won't go into because they're not very interesting. But um, it's just that I could, people say, oh, when did that happen? Like, I, I had no idea, don't know. Because time became irrelevant. Well, I argue with people now uh, about what day it is. <laughs> and, uh, if I don't look at a calendar, you know, Monday could be Thursday or Monday could be still Sunday. It's very, it's just very strange. I have found, um, and you know what's stranger is as we speak. Um, you know, I know how to keep myself busy, and when it's been beautiful weather out there, I've been shooting a lot of black and white portraits on my iPhone, which is all I shoot pictures on these days. Um, it's easy. I love the effect of black and white squares. So I've been working on this project called Art in the Time of Coronavirus. And um, a couple of the pictures just got published in Paris, France, not Paris, Texas, and um, in, in New York. Um, they're very interesting. They're very beautiful. And of course, uh, you know, I did them outdoors because I love natural light and um, stood, of course, six feet away from the subject. Uh, but, you know, the common ground is that we're all in this together. And the common other common ground is that everyone has to wear a face covering. So um, they've been really, really beautiful. So when it's been nice weather, um, that's what's been keeping me a bit sane, going outside and being able to shoot a beautiful photograph. So tell me about your art, because uh, the reason this conversation is happening is because I saw your film, Who the Fuck is That Guy?, 
on Netflix quite quite a while ago now, and I posted yeah. it on my Instagram, and uh, you saw it and you commented, "Thank you, you know, whatever for watching the film," and 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 we we spoke about possibly sort of collaborating on something like this. But at the time, I didn't actually really... I wasn't sure if I was going back to radio or not. So here we are, finally. But at the end of that film, which I understand, you know, I appreciate is maybe... Five, how, how old is that film now? Five years? No. Um, well, it, it started on Netflix through um, 2017. Right. And we had a three-year contract with them, and the three-year contract is up right now. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so that was that was sort of the end of your film, wasn't it? Was that you were doing photography. That was kind of, I think, if I remember rightly, where we left off with you. So tell me about tell me about your art. It's there's it's a lot of there's a lot of male subjects. There's lots of muscles on on, on show. Yes, that's <laughs> all I know about art: <laughs> men, muscles, and scars. Yeah, you know, listen, I was a professional A&R person for 25 years. I loved my job. I really did a great job. I don't say that with any ego because I have no ego whatsoever. Really, I don't. But I always love photographs. I love the stories that pictures tell. When I was a little kid, I had a little plastic Kodak camera that I just carried around with me everywhere. I was always interested in what the story that was being told in a picture whether it was a live concert picture or if maybe at 15 years old, I didn't know to call something a portrait, but, uh, you know, just shooting a portrait of somebody. I also carried around an Instamat, a Polaroid camera because I have no patience. And even back then, <laughs> I wanted everything immediately. Yeah. And so uh, early on in photography, I shot a lot of concert live concert pictures and that was okay but it wasn't really it wasn't telling the stories yet that i wanted to tell in a picture so after my 25 years as an a and r person i just thought i'm going to professionally take pictures you know i only had one year at the school of visual arts for photography but i always thought that i don't want anything to be perfect everything just has to have a feeling and if you capture a feeling when you take a portrait of somebody, that means I did my job and they gave me back something and they did their job. So all that to say, shoot what you love. So I thought, well, I'm going to shoot men. I'm going to shoot muscle men. I'm going to sometimes shoot them naked. I want to make, I want to see what kind of tattoos they have, uh, what kind of scars they have, because I want the picture to tell a story. And inevitably, the pictures did. So I did three books of male erotica. And I'm just kind of done with that. Because I kind of feel like, you know, I said all I wanted to say in those pictures. So now I kind of discarded my cameras as well. And I use my iPhone for everything. Even my last book, Beautiful Imperfections, it's a 10 by 10 square book, and I shot it all on the iPhone. I love the immediacy of it. I found a, um, an app called Hipstamatic, and in that Hipstamatic app, I found a beautiful black and white faux film. And so, and everything is a square, because I love anything in a square. So I take pictures now with that 
iPhone. I shoot backstage stuff. And even when I'm backstage, you know, if I see Billy Biohazard, I'll say, come to the bathroom with me. And everybody looks at me like, what are we going to the bathroom for? Because it has good fluorescent light. And this app loves fluorescent light. I got the most beautiful picture of Billy. Quiet, eyes closed, just tucked in a corner and just the pictures really and the pictures really do come out beautiful because I know what I want from somebody and I just know how to get it and usually I can get those portraits in 10 minutes sometimes so whether it's Billy whether it's Rob Zombie whether it's this gal I met backstage at Slayer whose face was half tattooed and she was so beautiful that I said, I know we don't know each other, but can we go to the bathroom together? Because I want to take your picture. She looked at me a little odd, but everybody in our circle backstage at Slayer just looked at her and said, it's okay. Like, you know, I wasn't going to like attack her or anything. Her name is Chris. Uh, I think she lives in the Midwest. She's so beautiful that it's crazy. And I got, I, I, I took Maybe I took 15 minutes to shoot her portrait and I got five or six things that are just so devastatingly beautiful because she was into it and surprised and I was into it. And so, you know, when you connect with somebody, things can just happen immediately. So my next book, I want to be just portraits. I might just put some of these photographs from my new project, Art in the Time of Coronavirus, in there, because everything is black and white, so I'll just kind of make it all work. And I don't know, I, that was a long-winded answer to your question. No, it was great. I loved it. What, what made, what was so beautiful about... Um... Well, you know, her, her face was angular. She had a beautiful jaw, beautiful nose. Her eyes were just magnificent. And, you know, when somebody, she had a certain charm and charisma about her and that half her face was tattooed and it made her even more beautiful and more different and so I just thought I had to have a picture of this person so I guess with your your background and being an A&R uh, artist and repertoire um guy um you have the the sort of the ability to know when someone's a star when someone is very interesting when someone you know i guess you can look at people i'm very much the same i can look at people and think yeah you you've got something going on that's very interesting that i want to know about Mm -hmm. and that's generally how this podcast seems to go with the people that don't have a massive sort of don't have a profile such as yourself but still want to talk to them it's because I've recognized something in them which I think is almost like a star-like quality, or at least you get the vibe. Do you feel like you have that knack? You see someone and you go, yeah, I need to I need to capture something about you. Yes. I mean, I know the difference between good and great. It's just something innate in me that I recognize that in others. I, you know, I'll use James Hetfield as a perfect example. You know, so it's 1982. I'm working at the Ritz. I'm a booking agent there. And me and my friend Phil Cavano from Monster Magnet go to L'Amour. L'Amour in Brooklyn was only seven blocks away from my home when I was a teenager. I don't know if I had moved out of my house yet. So it's 1982 and everybody's talking about this band. And uh, we go see them at L'Amour. I mean, 
these were young people who already knew what they were doing on stage. And they were all had a bit of star quality to them. Um, specifically James. He was a he is a ringleader on stage. He knows how to whip the crowd into a frenzy. And these were young people then who knew how to tell a great story in their songs. So, you know, when someone can take you on a journey and when somebody is fronting a band and people go insane over this person, there are signs there that this is going to develop into something big. And it, it did. So, you know, the same thing with John Lydon. You know, I didn't discover John, but I loved the Sex Pistols. They made that one extraordinary record that was a landmark record that also helped change the landscape of rock and roll and punk rock and the merging of the two. So when John was labelless for a moment, I thought to myself, I love this. Oh, well, you know what? I'm sorry. I have to backtrack. Uh, yeah. By 1983, I was booking the Ritz. Bow Wow Wow was supposed to play. Malcolm McLaren called me and he canceled the gig. I was like, the gig is sold out for two nights. What are you talking about? He said, well, you know, Annabella is underage. She can't come here. Her mom won't let her travel overseas. And I said, well, when you booked this two months ago, she was still underage. And, you know, I think Annabella and some other people tell it a little differently, and that's okay. I was like, I'll pay for her mother to come here. And he was like, nah, we're not coming. And I thought, I have three or four days. I don't know what to do. It's the weekend. Everybody goes out clubbing on the weekend. And these shows happen to have been sold out. I don't remember how I found out. Public Image Limited were in New York. They were on a press junket promoting their record Flowers of Romance. I didn't know John yet. It's May of 1981. I call, I think it was Liz Rosenberg's office at Warner Brothers in New York. I let the, her know who I was and what I did. I, and I think she knew because um, I made kind of a name for myself already at uh, the Ritz. And I spoke to John and Jeanette and Keith Levine, and I convinced them to come to my office that day. They came to my office that day. They said, we have no instruments here. I said, let's just make it work. We rented a Profit 5 keyboard for Keith so he could program, like, I think, 45 minutes worth of music into it. And we said yes. We had no idea what the heck was going to happen. And, you know, that is a show that, you know, 30... Nine years later, people still ask me about. It was a debacle. They wanted to do performance art, and people wanted to come see Johnny Rotten, Being mm. Rotten, John Lydon, PIL. So they, we had a 30-foot beautiful screen at the Ritz, which was one of the things the venue was known for, which we showed uh you know, remember, it's 1980, 1981. It's the uh, advent of MTV. Everybody has a video. We would play the videos. So that night, they didn't want to come out from behind the screen. They were beautiful. These black lights um, being shown from uh, the front. So all you saw was um, shadows, like moving and dancing around. And it was beautiful. These people didn't care about art. They didn't care about performance art. And, you know, John just was like peeking his head out, wanting to taunt and tease the audience and let them know 
were never coming out from behind the screen. So when people got tired of 18 minutes, I think, of Flowers of Romance from the balcony, bottles, uh, and a beer and whatnot, drinks, everything. I think maybe chairs got thrown off the balcony and uh, we had to shut down the Ritz. I thought it was a fabulous spectacle. I made my way backstage. John was already laughing about the whole thing. My boss, Jerry Brandt, who just passed away, may he rest in peace, did not think it was too funny. And remember in 81, security didn't know how to handle young people who were either pogoing in the audience or throwing themselves on the stage, all for the love of rock and roll. You know, so I'm backstage and that night cemented the deal of having a 39-year relationship with John Lydon, who I just spoke to about a month ago, in oh, maybe two months ago, January 2021. He's an extraordinary character. He is a person that when he walks in the room, he's the smartest person in the room. He can talk to you about everything and anything and everything. Why did I bring this up? Because I love John Lydon. And we're talking about charm, charisma, great storytelling, and knowing how to, uh, like I said, tell an incredible story. So when you speak to John now and he picks up the phone, what's the kind of thing that happens? You, well, you know, how does it generally go? Because I, I guess you guys just kind of stay in touch every few months now. What kind of things do you talk about? Uh, well, let's see. Surprising enough, he said, hello, Michael Alago. And I was like, oh, my darling, how are you? And he says, well, you know, is this pandemic? And he said, why do I have a feeling you've been thinking about your mom? And I said, well, because I have. So it started off very strange, but not so strange. And it had been four years in February that she passed away. So we started talking about our parents. He talked about his dad, who's no longer with us. We talked about art a little bit, books. And I asked him about his wife, Nora, who is struggling now. We didn't want the conversation to end on a sad note. So I, he asked me, he said, do you have a lot of pictures of me and Nora? I said, I don't know about a lot, but they do range from 1981 to when we went to the Tribeca Film Festival three years ago. So he asked me to send them to him. You know, in the course of our conversations, we always have a good laugh. And, you know, sometimes it's serious business because life can be serious, especially when you're taking care of someone who is not well. I don't speak out of turn here because he has publicly spoken about taking care of his missus, uh, Nora. Nora was Ari Up's mom from The Slits, that punk rock group, The Slits. Uh, Nora is uh, much older than John. I think they've been together over 42 years. And John has always been faithful to her. Now, that in itself, I, I just bow down to that. Mm. He is a loving, John is a, you know, he is um, misunderstood a lot. And um, he's a marvelous human being. He's about, he really is about, you know, peace and love and understanding. And, um, you know, everybody goes through phases. You know, in eight, in what, in the 77, I think he was living in the, what do they call the, the flats, the council flats or something? You know, and yeah, uh, yeah. they were young people, the Sex Pistols, you know, 
They hated Margaret Thatcher. Um, so everybody goes through phases, as John did, and he has grown into a superb human being whom I adore. So you think it's true love with John then? Must oh, be. Oh, yes. John and Nora, absolute true love. I mean, they're so dedicated, so beautifully to each other. And, you know, John is a star. John is one of those people who does have that wild charisma. Whether you like him or not, he knows how to put you in your place in 60 seconds. Or he is just so loving and complimentary. But just don't screw with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I guess we were just talking about artists that have that charisma and charm and know how to tell a story. And in my case, it's, you know, it's James Hetfield, it's John Lydon, it's Rob Zombie, uh, working on two albums with a dear friend of mine, Cindy Lauper, and uh, signing my favorite artist ever uh, after she had not made records for 10 years, Nina Simone. For me, the greatest artist that ever lived. Also another person, don't fuck with her because she will rip your head off. Um, I remember one day I took her to the China Grill, this very fancy building, a restaurant in the Black Rock building, which is part of CBS, down the block from 75 Rock where Electra Records was. So we go have lunch and the waiter comes over to us and says, what can I get for you guys? Oh boy, I knew there was trouble. She grabbed him by his tie. She says, do I look like a fucking guy to you? And he was like, oh, ma'am, I'm very, very sorry. And she just pushed him out of the way. He went flying, his tie went flying, and he knew better than to call her. Like, like that slang when you just say, how you guys doing? Not with Nina Simone, you don't. Anyway, I don't know. I feel like I have been all over the place in our conversation thus far. Um, but, you know, it just, it just speaks a little bit about the characters that I have loved working with because I feel they always have stories to tell, you know? And, you know, yeah. even Nina Simone, who rarely writes, although she did write To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, um, and a few other tunes, you know, she mostly has taken, she takes from Jacques Brel, from George Harrison, from Bob Dylan, and she gets to the heart of the matter of a song so that you think this person wrote those songs. But no, that's where her brilliance lies in taking any song and just twisting and turning it and make it Nina Simone style. So uh, do you think normal people bore you? But what you know, I would sort of call normies. Do you, do you, do you, have you only ever been attracted to certain energy? Uh, well, I am attracted to certain energy. I don't think I know anybody normal, whatever normal means. You know, I've always been surrounded by creative people and I find myself to be a creative being as well. So that's just, you know, that's the energy you put out there. And, um, you know, so I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of normal people around there, around here, but I don't think I, um, I have associated with anybody normal because it's just, you know, the world that I have grown up in, you know, the work that I have done. And I find that all those people are special people. So in being a special human being, <laughs> there's nothing normal about you. 
So you said about growing up uh, and and the people you've been around. Tell me about New York City in the seventies. Let's let's rewind to sure to uh, where your film sort of begins. You know, you're talking about New York in the seventies, and, and I guess growing up, you know, being gay in the seventies in New York, it's probably an easier place to be gay in America in the seventies. But I'm sure it had its own challenges. Sure, uh, I grew up in I grew up in Brooklyn. Hispanic, gay. Uh, you know, I always had this bit of bravado about me. And I was really, I don't think I was ever in the closet. And I always thought from a very young age, you were either going to like me or not. And I really didn't care. You know, I graduated from high school in 1977, but I had already been going to CBGB and Max's Kansas City and I was in the thick of the punk rock scene. I uh, used to purchase a newspaper and the Village Voice had everything in there from music, art, theater, politics, and porn. I loved everything about that newspaper except the politics part of it. (laughs) I was just like too young to think about any of that, but I had no problem thinking about music, art, theater, and pornography. Loved it all. So, um, you know, I was going out all the time. Why my mom let me go out all the time as a young person, I don't know. But um, I think she knew that music, you know, and I speak about this in my book, I Am Michael Alago, that funny enough, as of today, March 3rd, I believe it had just come out one year ago. (laughs) So all that to say, you know, the book begins saying, Uh, I believe I came out of the womb loving music. I knew music was going to always be my life. I had no idea what form it would take because I didn't play an instrument. But uh, I was out every night. I checked the listings of all the clubs, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, Max's or CB's or a short-lived club called On the Rocks. I just checked the music section of the Village Voice. And if something sounded interesting to me or I had heard about them, I went to see them. You know, that I was always very curious and I had friends over at Sire Records and I knew that Seymour Stein was putting out the Dead Boys and uh, the Talking Heads and the Ramones. And I wanted to be part of all of that. You know, I had heard about Stiff Records in the UK putting out the first damned record. Um, and when I saw in, a, in an advertisement that there were three nights of the damned and the dead boys, you knew I was going to go every single night. And I did. And I love the dead boys who were from Youngstown, Ohio so much that I started a little fan club for them. And, you know, what did I know at 15 years old about starting, or 16, starting a fan club? So I only made one zine. It was all cut and paste. It was called All This and More, named after a song on their debut record called Young, Loud and Snotty. And they have been one of my favorite bands ever. It's funny you should mention the Dead Boys because when I was growing up, I had a I have a friend called Will Angeloro who is a New Yorker and he moved to our town, oh, I can't remember now, maybe 20 years ago. And he was a big, big figure in my punk rock education cool. um because he'd been in the in the heart of it and uh and he made me a, 
a compilation CD that had like Rancid on it and the Clash on it and everything. And it was basically this this punk rock introduction sampler. And on there was the Dead Boys and it was uh, Sonic Reducer. Oh, boy. Oh, man. What a tune. Well, you know, once the lights went down and you knew they were on stage, that was the song they always opened up with. And it made people crazy. I mean, that song live was just one of those brilliant opening numbers. And maybe for people who are listening to this and could not have been at CBGB back in the day, I'm always grateful that we have stuff like, you know, YouTube and Google. Because if you go to YouTube and press, you know, click in, type in uh, Dead Boys, Sonic Reducer, 1977, Boy, are you going to get an earful and an eyeful. That's the beauty today of technology. Oh, I love this. That, you know, we're talking and my video camera says you're unstable. I, yeah, of course I'm unstable. What did you think after all those years of drinking drugs, but 13 years sober? So, you know, it's, it's a great platform, YouTube, that you could see all those things that you wish you saw back then. You could see the damned and the dead boys and Eddie and the Hot Rods, Death School, uh, Suicide, Blondie, Patti Smith, The Ramones, 1974, The Ramones, you know, 25 songs in 17 minutes. Honey, that was punk rock. We were there. I was there every night. I started going to CBs in 75, and I saw Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers when Richard Hell was still in the band. He left to make a sire record called Blank Generation, which everybody flipped out over. CBGB was my home away from home. Hilly Crystal, may he rest in peace, the owner, never carded all us kids. He just said, if I see you with an alcoholic beverage, you're out for two weeks. So, of course, we drank everything before we got to the venue, and we were all a little lit all the time. But, you know, we were young, and we were having fun, and we were discovering ourselves, and we were discovering all those artists that I just mentioned to you. And the beauty of that, like I said, I think, was that that was my home away from home. And I was there on the very last day, October 15th, 2006, on its closing night. I was hanging out with Danny Fields, my dear friend of 40 years, who discovered the MC5, the Stooges, and the Ramones. I was standing outside with Jim Carroll, rock and roll poet, living at the movies, Catholic boys, the basketball diaries, and also the late, great David Peel, who in the 60s made a record for Elektra called Have a Marijuana. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, Patty Smith was doing a performance inside. So how extraordinary is that to be involved in that whole thing? And it was all because music I knew was always going to be my life. And I was always curious. You, you've mentioned so many things in that that I, I, I want to touch upon. Sure. Um Danny Fields. Yes. Um, there's, a, there's a great documentary about Danny Fields. Danny says, that's correct. On Netflix. He's my dear, darling friend. He started working at the Ritz as our publicity person in 81. And that's, again, that cemented the deal. Two gay men in the music business. I'll tell you a funny story. And those bastards, whoever they are, not Danny, 
They took my scene out of Danny Says, and I've been forever furious. So I'm going to tell you right now. You know, Danny and I, from the get-go, we got along like a house on fire. So one day, Black Flag are coming to play the Ritz, and they get there early to do a sound check. Of course, Danny and I are in love with Henry Rollins. Back then, well, how old was he? 22, 23, and, you know, long hair. He was hot. We left, we opened the door to our office and looked down the balcony to the stage and we saw that they were doing this full on, loud, sweaty sound check. And Danny and I were like in heaven. So they finished with, you know, we, we had work to do. So we went back to our office, they did their sound check and Henry <laughs> knocked on the door and came in to the office. And all he had on were like sneakers and these very short, short shorts that were, he was filled with sweat. Danny and I were very happy. And he just plopped himself down into a chair and just started talking to us. He didn't know about me, but the smart cookie, once again, that he is, he knew about Danny's history. So we talked for a long time. And then when he left, because, you know, him and the band went to go to their hotel or the van, probably their van, and uh, we would see them that evening. The minute Henry got up from the chair, Danny and I leapt to the chair and smelled the chair. It was very spinal tap, like smell the glove, but it was Henry and we wanted to know what he smelled like. Do you believe that those damn people edited me out of Danny Says, but at least I got to tell you the story here? And somewhere on YouTube, that video clip exists. I'm sure that's not the question you asked me, but it was the answer I gave you. Yes. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> that's a great story. That is. And, and, uh, and a touch on two others that you mentioned in that. Jim Carroll... Is that the Jim Carroll band uh, with the song People Who Died? Yes, of course it is. Yeah, yes. that was that was also on that disc that I was given. Oh, how marvellous. Your fr- Please thank, is your friend still with us? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell him I said thank you very much for, um, for enlightening your head. <laughs> and I'll tell you something else. Blank Generation was on that as well. Oh, isn't that something? He also introduced me to, um, what was the, what's the Peel, David Peel? The David Peel Sessions. We are from the Lower East Side. What's that? It's one of it's. It might it might even um, predate the Stooges and the New York Dolls in proto punk in what we consider to be the punk sound. Wait, and who are you saying? From David Peel. Yeah. Yeah, there's a song called "We Are from the Lower East Side." And whose song is it? It's from David Peel. And if you listen to it, it's oh. punk rock, but it predates New York Dolls. And the Stooges, I believe. I think it's 71 or 72. Ah, you know what, hon? I'm so sorry. I My brain, like, flipped out. I thought you were talking about the John Peel sessions in the UK. But ah. you, you were mentioning David Peel, who I just finished talking about. You see what happens? This is good that I don't drink anymore. Because um, can you can imagine what this would have been like. Yes, David Peel, have a marijuana. Very clever. Um, and, okay, so you were telling me about this song that was on the disc that your friend gave you. Yeah. Oh, I can breathe now. <laughs> I'm trying to think about what what else was on that compilation. That New York Dolls Jet Boy was on there, which I loved. Oh boy. Mercury Records. 
Okay, a little trivia. Who produced that first album? My gut is saying Ed Stasium, but I don't think so. No, Todd Rundgren. Ah. Hi guys, it's Andy. I just want to jump in here and contextualize this conversation. Within this podcast, you're going to hear myself and Michael talking an awful lot about the second lineup of The Misfits. That band meant so much to me, and their first lineup meant so much to me when I was growing up that I, you're going to hear me talking a lot about them in this podcast. But as of record, as of today's little announcement here, uh, Michael Graves, the frontman for that era of The Misfits, has been in the music press for holding Proud Boy and White Supremacist opinions, ideologies, views, whatever you want to say. And I wanted to just put this in at the start of the podcast here and just unequivocally put on the record, I do not support Michael Graves in these uh, ideas, ideologies, opinions. Um, I'm deeply disappointed that that uh, someone I looked up to growing up uh, has, has sort of turned into this. Um, it is very disappointing. It's very heartbreaking. Um, but I just wanted to jump in here and put on the record this podcast was recorded some weeks ago and as of today Michael has been in the press for having these beliefs so I just wanted to put that out there that we are not standing with Michael uh, even though within this podcast I do shower an awful lot of love on his era of the misfits but yeah now that's cleared up and that's crystal clear please enjoy the podcast of Michael Alago it is bloody good and I love him I know you later on. I, I I know you signed the Misfits to um, <laughs> Geffen. Uh, Geffen, and then they and then they jump ship to Roadrunner. But tell me, and I want to get to that. But tell me about the original era of the Misfits because yeah. I received that coffin box set that was released in about ninety six. Yeah, and I, the story with that is I've got a local record store here in my town, and they're called Raves from the Grave. And they've been here forever. And me and my friends, when we were in school, we absolutely loved the Misfits. And we didn't feel like anyone else knew who they were, really. Mm -hmm. And we would go past this record store and we would look in the window. In the window was this coffin box set by the Misfits. And at the time, whatever it cost was far too much money uh, for us because we were still in school and I remember we just coveted that thing because at the time it felt like it had everything they'd ever recorded in it and of course it was in the shape of a coffin and uh and I remember we we, we would look at it and I think in, I think inside you got a badge and a booklet that's right yeah an enamel fiend club badge and I loved it and and, and I banged on about it and we, no one was able to afford it from from my friend group like and then one Christmas, I opened it up for Christmas. And I was like, oh, my God, my friends are going to be so jealous. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I was the one who got it. And the mu- But the music within that changed my life. Changed, it, it just made, it was punk, but it was sophisticated pop at the same time. But it was accessible to me. Yeah, I felt the same way. You know, I always said the Misfits are a pop band disguised as punk. And a, a pop band with memorable melodies. And they always sang about like JFK and Marilyn Monroe and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, horror films. That was, I mean, 
talk about a focused band, you know, we loved hearing everything from what is it, horror business to vampire, extraordinary band. You know, they are one of those bands also who are unique unto themselves. And nobody, I mean, you can try, but nobody could copy what they do. Also a band who had wildly charismatic people in the group. Glenn Danzig, Jerry Only, and my angel, Doyle von Frankenstein. <laughs> the drummers changed every so often, but they're an extraordinary band. I mean, I think, I think, I, I'm looking it up just because sometimes my memory is a little wrong. I think Walk Among Us came out like in 1982 on Ruby Records. Uh, it may, I'm not sure on the record label, but it was not included in that box set in 96 because of some licensing issues. It may have been on Caroline. I'm not sure. Ah, it was on Ruby, and the parent company was called Slash Records, uh, won by the late, great Bob Biggs. Yeah, yeah. And I believe Sla- uh, Slash wound up being distributed through Warner Brothers at some point as well. Yeah, I've got some Slash Records. that They, they, did, um, they did some Faith No More reissues, and uh, I think they did the original Faith No More, possibly. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've met Jerry... Twice, twice maybe. Uh-huh. Um, always as a fan though, just sort of at the show. You know, he'll walk past the queue or whatever. But it only took once, it only took one time, and then the second time he knew me. You know what I mean? He knew who I was. And obviously, I'm. You can't see it here, but I'm six foot nine. I'm a big guy. So what? Yeah, yeah, six foot nine. Oh my lord! That's, okay, great. That's why we're called the Giant Pod. Um, <laughs> There you go. There we are. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, he would, because how tall is Doyle? He, he, he's a big guy as well, isn't he? He must be 6'5". Yeah, he's got to be 6-something or 6'5 with those boots on. But he's definitely over 6 feet. Yeah. Not as tall as you, but uh, definitely 6 feet plus. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, and I've just, you know, I just get the feeling that it was. I mean, I always remember. I always. I, I went to see them in Bristol, and they were playing. It was where Des Kadena was with them, and it must have been when they did that Black Rain. Uh, no, the Devil's Rain. Whatever it's called. Oh, so there was. Did, were they traveling as a trio? Yeah, yeah, and they had that guy. Not the best version. No, I'm sorry to say. No, but it, it was a big deal to me because before that, I'd only ever seen the Misfits. I, I went to see Danzig do one of his shows at the Roundhouse. And he had Doyle on to do a legacy encore. And that was, I thought... That when was that? That was... Um, oh, oh, don't know when that was. A while. 2013. Maybe. He was on his some sort of anniversary tour. That's right. I was on the stage of that show. Ah. I, I have pictures from back backstage that night. I, um, I got there early and I filmed the roundhouse empty. That was an extraordinary night. Yeah. Everybody had so much fun. You know, I met people that night that I'm friends with right now, still. Well, what is that? Let's see, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So it must have been eight years ago already. And, you know, in this day and age, time flies to begin with. Uh, I can't believe it's already March of 2021. But let's get back to the Misfits. The Misfits are extraordinary. I love them from the get-go. I got to see them at CBGB in their first incarnation uh after that they i don't think they played much at all after that they were quiet for a long time 
Uh, I start working at uh, Geffen Records in 90, I don't know, 96. Let's, let's just say 96. That sounds good. And I knew that they were going back out again with a new singer named Mike Graves, Michael Graves. And I went to see them a few times. And you know what? Totally different band. But, you know, it's the songs. And then you have a young person like Michael there who kind of personified youth. He had a look. And he knew how to sing those pop tunes, you know? And of course, people are not going to love Misfits the way they loved them during Static Age, uh, Walk Among Us, all of those uh, great songs and records. But, you know, it's nice that Michael filled the shoes that he was asked to fill. And the shows were just always so much fun. So at some point, you know, I believe in... Um, 97, I um, made a record with them while I was at Geffen Records. Uh, the record is called American Psycho. Ow. Hold that thought, <laughs> people. So uh, Michael has disappeared. I disappeared. I'm sorry. I went. This is a whole day about me going back in the closet, believe it or not. So I know your audience can't see this, but... Um, there's a, you know, I, I made a record with them called American Psycho, produced by my friend Daniel Ray, who uh, was in the Masters of Reality, and he wrote Pet Cemetery for the Ramones, and it was mixed by Andy Wallace. And we love Daniel. He always spoke so highly of the Misfits, and he loved them so much that I knew he would do a good job. We had the, the great, great Andy Wallace mix the record because we loved what, um, what he did with... Uh, with Slayer. And, uh, you know, I had him produce my first white zombie record that came out in 92. So it was really, I thought American Psycho is an extraordinary record. It's a fun album. You know, we made some uh, great videos from that record. Like, um, oh, oh there's, I think Don't Open Till Doomsday. But the great one is uh, Dig Up Her Bones. Yeah. It was almost a little unfair that I signed them to a major because, you know, when you work for a major, you know, people are a bit corporate, believe it or not. I was anything but corporate ever. You know, the record just didn't do what, what the numbers that uh, corporate wanted it to do. I had a lot of fun with them that time period. I went on the road with them to Spain to support that record. Drew Stone, who produced Who the Fuck Is That Guy? A Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, was came on the road with us because he was managing a little band that I adore from New York called Sub-Zero. All I remember about that tour is I was drunk every night and me and the Sub-Zero guys got into fights with people every night. And that's all I remember about Spain, believe it or not. <laughs> Shame on me, but not really. Um, anyway, so I made that record with them and they, they got dropped and I just, you know, uh, you know, I just kind of moved on. But, you know, I've always been a fan of all incarnations of the Misfits. So for all of us who have followed them all these years, don't you think we were in rock and roll heaven when they announced that they were going to do Riot Fest in 2017? And uh, uh, it was, you know... Glenn, Jerry, Doyle, and I think for most of those shows, the great Dave Lombardo. 
It was Dave Lombardo and Slayer, babe, Slayer. Uh, yeah, and he he's the man for the job there. And also, you've got AC Slade as well, who That's used correct. to be in um, what was he in the Murder Dolls? Couldn't tell you. I think he was in the Murder Dolls or Marilyn Manson or something. So one of those sort of two thousandsy goth rock uh, uh, acts. But yeah, so I kind of have to thank you in a way, Michael, because because you signing the Misfits to Geffen gave them that second wind which then sure. made their original back catalogue relevant again. And I think what you did with them on that album has solidified their legend even more so. I think that and a lot of people can say what you want about the second era of The Misfits, but that era is the era that dragged that, uh, that original lineup uh, and the legacy out of, I don't want to say obscurity, but... Pushed them. It, I think it really elevated them in rock and roll history. It, it really did bring them back to life um, because, as a major, we did spend some money on that record. And, uh, like you said, you know, um, everybody wanted to hear what this new Misfits record sounded like. And I think most people like the album, except for those people who are diehard Glenn fans. And you can't blame them for that. So, like I said, we started chatting about when they were coming back together again. Wow, did we all love that. And the beauty of that, too, is they came back in a big way. They were playing 18,000 seaters. And the staging, I mean, the staging alone blew my mind. Because if you saw any one of those shows that they did, the staging was, the screens were huge behind them. You know, I liken it to being in Times Square in New York City at midnight or um, downtown in Tokyo. You know, it just had bright lights everywhere and and videos of everything from all the great George Romero films. It was over. I'm, I'm fumbling my words a little bit here because I'm so excited. But they just, the staging was out of this world. And, you know, it just complemented everything great that the band in their new incarnation, again, was was just doing on stage and just letting everybody have it. And everybody was in fine form for those shows. And we all flipped out, you know. Can you imagine seeing the Misfits back in the day at CBGB? They go away for almost a lifetime. I make a different kind of a Misfits record. And then they, in 2017, they're back playing 18,000 seaters. And, you know, everybody, everybody wanted to see the Misfits. Yeah, un- unbelievable. And when they announced the Madison Square Garden show, I was just like, I never thought I would see them get back together again with Danzig, let alone play Madison Square fucking Garden. I know. It just, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I thought the closest I was going to get to seeing them would be seeing one of the unfortunately not as good lineups, which Jerry only you know had on the road, you know, the the years leading up to that, and Danzig doing misfit songs with Doyle at the Roundhouse. I thought that was as close as I was going to get, and I'd made my peace with it. And it's still as close as I've got because I haven't seen those shows yet, and I'm wondering what they're going to do. Are they going to release a live album? Evil Live Three would be great. Um, a concert film, Blu-ray of, of some of those shows would be great. Well, the con- a concert film would be extraordinary. Now, you know, everybody 
bitched and complained going to those shows because they took your uh, your cell phone away. Oh, that is quite corporate. Oh, well, Glenn was being, I love Glenn, Glenn, I love you. (laughs) He was being a curmudgeon about it and he didn't want the shows filmed. And I don't blame him in a way because I'm, I'm thinking that what we were just talking about, they had, the way they had big plans to come back and play these large music venues, I'm sure, although I haven't really even asked Doyle, were all, I'm sure all those film, those shows were filmed every night that they played. Because you know what? Let's hope that there's a brilliant DVD that's going to come out of all this, that sounds amazing, that looks amazing. Like I said, the staging was out of this world. And once again, if you go to YouTube, you could find some of those clips there. Even though lots of people like, you know, stuck their phones down their pants and, you know, wherever. And um, but, you know, even though no one was allowed to do it, everyone finds a way. And it's all done with love and respect, I say, for the band that they're going to see. Yeah. You know, Um, I could talk to you about the Misfits all night. I'm just going to say this. If they come to the UK with one of their big, ridiculous original lineup shows um don't be surprised if i email you and ask you if you can get me on a guest list <laughs> sure and don't be surprised that I, t- I tell you if i tell you i'm here already <laughs> so please come be my guest yes of course I'll, uh, I'll take you up on that absolutely so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna close the misfits chat now because i will talk to you about them all night because they literally changed my life um uh, with thanking you for signing them to geffen records because i think what you did cool. what you did there meant that they could come back now to to the legacy that they have and um in the music changed my life so thank you for your part in that oh uh, well thank you for saying that my pleasure let's move this on to your other um uh huge signing now uh, which I'm, I'm not as big of a fan of i love metallica i have an extensive collection of bits and bobs from them but obviously the misfits were the, the band that changed my life um and they they also have there's a good segue they also have uh, a hand in cementing the Misfits legacy because they um, cover their songs on their multi-platinum selling album, uh, Garage they, Days. What do they cover? Green uh, Hell. Green Hell. Um, they did Last Caress. Last Caress, that's correct. And they also did Die, Die, My Darling. Oh, probably. My mind just went blank. But yes, I mean, you know, they all love the Misfits and, you know, that was part of their adoration for them. Let's, you know, let's more people hear about them. So that's why, you know, they covered their their their, their songs just, for, you know, for the love of the band that they have admired all their whole life growing up, like all of us. But see now... Here we are talking about the Misfits again, which is absolutely fine if we want to spend the rest of the hour or however long we have on the Misfits. But yeah, let's talk about Metallica. Yeah. We, we talk about them because they were <laughs> my biggest signing uh, as an A&R executive. And that cemented um, my history as an A&R executive, even though I did work at record companies for 25 years. Tell me about the tell, tell me your Metallica story. I know we touched upon it briefly earlier, but sure. Tell me more. Okay, I'll try to be brief as possible. I saw them at Lamore in Brooklyn in 1982 with my friend Phil Cavano. I loved them. I freaked out. We talked to them after the show, and then I was booking the Ritz. So my idea was to have them at the Ritz sometime in '82 or '83. That didn't happen. It's now 1983, and I start my A&R job at 
Electra Records. Funny thing is, I got the job. I had to call another friend of mine in the biz, and I said, what does A&R mean? Well, everybody laughed at me. I soon found out it was artist in repertoire. And um, for me, it was on-the-job training. I was a sponge. I took everything in uh, quickly. Um, I, I, I got hired by a man named Bob Krasnow, who was the chairman. He allowed me to listen to all of his phone calls to managers, lawyers, publishers, artists. And I just, I picked up all that, that language that as a corporate executive, he was using. I was anything but corporate because I was a young person from the streets. But uh, I had this job that I knew that that I didn't know as a teenager, that was the job that I was going to have in the music business. Um, so it's uh, 1983. I have to do some work in San Francisco. I knew the guys were playing at the Stone, um, and I go see them there. Uh, again, I'm, it, it's packed. I'm all the way up front. James is a ringleader. I freak out over how charismatic he is. The show is over. I see Lars. I hand him my business card. He says to me, you know, we are on a label already. I said, I know that. Uh, Megaforce Records, right on. Um, but you know what? I think there's going to be a time where we're going to be working together. So he looked at me, you know, probably with a Plasmatics t-shirt on. <laughs> he looked at the card and he couldn't believe that I was a record executive. You know, I was all, we were all of maybe 22 years old each, you know. Um, so fast forward, uh, I just went on with my job. They went on being Metallica. And um, it's now the beginning of 1984. I'm friends with Johnny Z. He becomes a, a, a one of my favorite colleagues who ran him and his late great wife, Marsha, who just passed away. God bless Marsha Zazula. Rock and roll. We love her forever. Forever. And don't make me, don't make me cry over this either. So, huh. John and I become colleagues very quickly. He, um, you know, they put out incredible records. They just didn't have money to take all those records to the next level. So I got to hear Kill 'Em All. I got to hear the first Anthrax record, the first Testament record, the first Raven record. Johnny Z thought Raven were going to be the biggest band known to man. He wanted me to sign them to Elektra. I gave him a couple of thousand dollars to make a demo. They gave me back a fabulous Raven demo. The problem was I heard Kill Em All and I knew I had to have these people in my life personally and professionally. Uh, Lars calls me and he says, we're coming to New York. We're doing a Megaforce night um, uh, uh, at Roseland. Um, fabulous music venue on West 52nd Street that had already been there 50 years. They tore it down a couple of years ago. Damn them, the city of New York, having no respect for history. So they come to New York as part of a triple act bill, Raven, Anthrax, and uh, Raven, and uh, sold out probably 3,500 people. I go to the venue. I'm drunk. Hello. What else is new? And um, they were in the middle slot. And because of all the hoopla and the underground excitement that they had been causing the last at least two years. They've been the most talked about underground metal band because of an early uh, cassette that came out called No Life Till Leather. 
that that was one of the things other than all the flyers that people were handing out, like, come see my band, you know, everything was DIY, do it yourself. So anyway, that night, they blew the roof off the place. The other acts were terrific as well. But really, they were the ones creating that buzz, unlike anybody else at the time. And the show is over and I go backstage, still a little drunk. And I bang on the door and I make my way in and I see Lars and I'm hugging everybody and carrying on. They're looking at me like, who the fuck is that guy? (laughs) (laughs) So Lars says, James, this is Michael Olago from Electra Records. And they looked at me as if we're putting our lives in the hands of this person. And uh, yes, they did. Um, We got along famously that evening. The next day, I had them in my office in a conference room. Um, We'll backtrack just a little bit. You know, Johnny Z was not happy with me at that point in time because I told him, you know, I'm giving you back the the demos you did with Raven for for Elektra, but I do want to sign Metallica. Now, of course, I don't want to go through the whole uh, rigmarole, but I do talk about it in my book. I am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. And um, they came to my office in uh, August of 84, right after that gig. And we had beer and Chinese food. Uh, it was 84, so I gave them tons of cassettes and vinyl of the MC5, the Stooges, the Doors. They loved it all. You know, of course, Cliff Burton, our beloved Cliff Burton, loved everything esoteric. And at one point he said, do you have Simon and Garfunkel? I said, Cliff, I don't have Simon and Garfunkel. They're with Columbia. But I got him like, I think, a box set or a bunch of vinyl on Simon and Garfunkel. Um, I felt like from that meeting, beer and Chinese food, I felt like they never left my office. A deal was struck with our business affairs people and the Megaforce business affairs people, person, that uh, everybody walked away happy. And, you know, I don't want to say this in a crass manner, but, you know, money does talk and everybody walked away satisfied with the deal. And, um, you know, if we're going to just keep it short and sweet, that signing changed the landscape, changed the face of heavy metal and rock and roll. It did. They are the biggest rock band, the biggest hard rock band, the biggest metal band uh in history and i don't i've heard many people say there will never be a band as big as metallica because the age the you know the 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 golden period of the music industry and selling records uh, and music videos is over for now i don't know maybe we can get a diamond age but i don't think anyone there's no i don't know if anyone can be that big again yeah now everything is cyclical That style of music will always exist. Um, But here we are 37 years later from my signing of them to Elektra that they are bigger than ever. Of course, if it wasn't for the pandemic, Metallica, like all our other favorite bands, Want to, want to, want, are going to be go, we're going on the road and they're still playing stadiums. And that's a testament to them sticking to their guns, never pandering, And because they stuck to their guns, they always gave us quality music. And that's what the fans relate to. Yes, there are some people who still say, you know, I only like Kill 'Em All and Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. But, you know, when you're that big, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And you 
can't repeat yourself because then you don't grow as an artist. So they never repeated themselves. And whether you like all of their records or not, whether you like Load and Reload and Saint Anger, they always did quality work. You know, me, I loved when uh, Death Magnetic came out. I loved the last recording, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Of course, their biggest and most commercial record to date is the Black Album. But they had to do that at that point in time. Or else, like I said once again, I'm just repeating myself a bit, they would have never grown. And they were always about growing. And that's why they are the biggest band in the universe. Uh, I love how you didn't mention Lulu, the album they did with uh, Lou Reed. <laughs> well, oh, well, you know, no, no. Okay, listen. Lulu just happens to be a Lou Reed record and Metallica back him up. That's how I see that record. Now, of course, nobody fancied that record. There are some things on that record that are beautiful and atmospheric. But like I said, I think it's a Lou Reed. I personally think it's a Lou Reed record. And he just happens to have the biggest band in the world, Metallica, backing him up. If you got the vinyl the artwork was just extraordinary. But, you know, they took a chance. They had great respect for Lou Reed, and they made that record with him, and he made that record with them. So, I don't know. I guess that's all I have to say about Lulu, unless you want to add something well, to that. Well, I think, <laughs> I think now that Lou Reed has passed, yes. that album, I think when he was alive, that album was maybe seen as a sort of a strange novelty. But I think now that he's passed, his, I think in, in time, historically, it's going to be more popular because I, I, I think people are going to listen to it out of curiosity. Um, oh, absolutely. I don't know anyone yeah. that likes the album. I really don't. But uh-huh. but I think it's if someone said to me, hey, do you want to hear a Lou Reed album with Metallica backing him up? I'd go get it on then. Yeah, of course. Right. You have to say that because <laughs> of the respect for both artists that we both probably have. You know, there's a great 19 minute song on that release that is very haunting and I think wonderful called Junior Dad. And it actually closes side two of the album. But yes, not a favorite of many people especially Metallica fans. But, you know, you have to breathe. You have to uh, take chances. And uh, they took a wonderful chance with Lou Reed and vice versa. I mean, it's not like they were going to lose any money on it. At all. (laughs) Uh, We have actually been, I believe, at two gigs uh, uh, at the same time. The first one being the Danzig Roundhouse show. The second one being uh, the last time Metallica worked Twickenham Stadium. Oh, MetLife Stadium? Yeah. Oh, you were there? Yeah, I was in the Golden Circle. I was, right, I was in that, yeah. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, I was there too. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic uh, evening. That was the second time I'd ever seen them, actually. I, the first time I saw them was at Glastonbury. And, of course, a festival appearance, and especially an appearance like Glastonbury, you're going to get Metallica, but um, it's not going to be Metallica doing Metallica, is it? It's going to be Metallica doing Glastonbury and I appreciate that they would be two different beasts in many ways and I was I was with an ex-girlfriend at the time she was the one who bought the tickets actually she bought the tickets uh before I met her and um and when we got together she said hey 
what you know you should come with me and uh, we were in the crowd waiting and she said i've seen metallica two three times or something they were her favorite band of all time she mm-hmm. got a, a lady justice thing tattooed on her ribs and that and she said but the only song i love by them i've never heard them play is the memory remains and she said oh, i really want to hear that song and i said oh i love that song as well that's a good that's a, you sure. know what happens they come out on stage first track gets uh, out the way with um or maybe not even that it's in the first two tracks memory remains just comes out and you should have seen her face it was just like oh, oh my god oh my god <laughs> and I, and i thought oh we've got the song now so we could just sort of in, in, stop anticipating and just in, in, enjoy the the thing but um yeah it's kind of weird how our paths um haven't crossed but we've been into in uh, similar spots yeah very interesting sure. um tell me about i want to know about writing your book and i want to know about the part where it says uh, beating death tell me about that sure well um you know i uh had this wildly successful film called who the fuck is that guy the fabulous journey of michael alago on netflix for three years the contract is up so drew and i are looking for other platforms to re-release the movie During that movie, some people at a little book company called Backbeat Books asked me if I had more stories to tell. And I thought to myself, more stories to tell? Of course I have more stories to tell. You know, you can't fit every story of your life um, in, you know, like an 80-minute film. So we focused on the film, on the highs and the lows, and um, just the important stuff. Um, But there was other important stuff. So I decided that uh, I was going to make a memoir, write a biography. I needed a little help because sometimes my brain suffers. The good part is that I was keeping journals since I was like 15 years old. Why I kept journals, I don't know. Those early journals were nothing um, poetic. It was not creative writing, but it was lists of places that I was going. So that set me up for, I don't know, just continuing to write. So I have journals that I write in to like write this minute, 2021, these days. So really the journals helped me write the book. I asked a dear friend of mine, Laura Davis, who was in a like a post-punk band called Student Teachers back in the day. And we hadn't seen each other for years. She was suggested to me, and she was a great help with me and helping my memory uh, come back. But uh, if it wasn't for these um, diaries and journals and pieces of paper that I kept for 30-odd years, my little book will not would not have happened. So I thought it was kind of almost, not cute, but uh, if the movie's called Who the Fuck Is That Guy?, I figured I'm allowed to call my book, I Am Michael Alago. And, um, you know, breathing music suggests, like I say in the book, I came out of the womb loving music. Yeah. Um, signing Metallica is just what it says it is. And we just spoke about Metallica. And Beating Death. Uh, beating Death is, um, you know, at first I called it cheating death, but you can't cheat death. But s- sometimes you can beat death, which I did twice. I was um, I was an alcoholic and a crack addict for a long time. I um, got the help that I needed to stop drinking and drugging. During that time period, I acquired HIV. At some point in time, I had full-blown AIDS. And it was at a time, early late 80s, early 90s, when there was no medicine out. 
if any of your listeners have ever seen the movie with Matthew McConaughey, Dallas Buyers Club. That's the only thing I can liken it to. I was uh, very ill. I had something called wasting syndrome where I shit everything out. I vomited everything out. And I, that happened. I was just on my sofa at home for a year. Everybody who came to visit thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. My mom thought I was going to die. You know, the white zombie people who I was so close to because they lived in the East Village here, they thought I was going to die. Eric Bogosian, everybody would come and visit. And um, I held on. I held on. Um, my doctor was at the forefront of um, working on a, get, found, finding a medication for the virus. She was um, an incredible physician who, at that point in time, was taking care of all uh, mostly gay men who were dying in the AIDS ward in New York at St. Vincent's Hospital. I refused to go to the hospital as sick as I was because I felt that would be the end of me. And so she didn't like that idea. I had good health insurance being part of Time Warner, working at Time Warner for many years. And um, I just stayed home and there was no medicine. So in one arm, she gave me an IV of vitamins. I had hard mumps, which is not good for a grown man to have. Mumps, I had pneumonia. My lungs were infected. I couldn't breathe. So in my left arm, there was a medication called pentamidine, which was going to help clear everything up. I was like that for a year. I, uh, uh, I, I held on, but I was filled with fear. Uh, a medication came into existence for HIV called AZT. Barbara said, my, my uh, Dr. Barbara Starrett said, Michael, as your physician, uh, as your primary care physician, I have to tell you um, this medication came into being. I don't want you to take it. I said, Barbara, you've kept me alive. I ain't taking it. Well, that medication wound up killing a lot of my gay brothers and sisters who had AIDS. I hung on, I hung on, I hung on. Uh, an antiviral came into being called, I think it was called sequinavir. I started taking it. And little by little, I started getting better. I started gaining weight. I was, um, my immune system was still compromised, but was getting better. I don't know. After a year, maybe another six months went by and I was up and about. I didn't look so good, but I went back to work at Electra. It's the 90s and, you know, it's a pandemic, a, a pandemic. AIDS was a pandemic and people didn't know. Can I hug Michael? Can I shake his hand? Can I kiss his cheek? Heavy stuff, man. But you can't get AIDS from shaking somebody's hand and you can't get it from hugging anybody. But, you know, um, anyway, so um, I got better. I stopped drinking and drugging and um, I live a clean and sober life these last 13 years. And living a clean and sober life, I wake up every day. I say my morning prayers, which is a series of thank yous. Uh, thank you, God, for waking me up. Thank you for waking me up sober. Thank you for the renewed relationship with my sister Cheryl since mom died. And that, list, and that list just goes on. The list goes on until I'm tired of the list. I then uh, make my bed. I have a cup of tea or two or three. 
And I get on my, now in 2021, I get on my Zoom AA meeting. I go to that meeting seven days a week. It's a one hour at nine o'clock in the morning. It sets my brain straight. I hear stories from other people who were suffering, who didn't want to suffer anymore. So that's what you do. Youth, when, you, when you're sick and tired of yourself and you have an addiction, you ask for help. And if you're serious about the help, you're going to get the help you need. So like I said, I go to my meetings every day, seven days a week. I do a lot of 12-step work with people who ask for help. I am here in and out of the program to just be of service to people, to be loving and kind. And um, that's just like how I conduct my life these days. You know, I live with gratitude. And, you know, I'm grateful that when my mom passed on, she was, she was 94 and she was a little thing, like four foot 10 inches tall, that I was there by her side. Because when my dad passed 25 years ago, I stole from him. Uh, he died three days after I like stole his credit cards. But, you know, when you're in the height of addiction, you'll do anything. So the only way I could make what we call in 12-step programs amends is that I ripped up the cards, I wrote him a loving letter, I apologized, I brought the letter, the cards in an envelope with a beautiful flowering plant to his grave site. And that was the only way I could say, I'm sorry to him. With my mom, I had already been 10 years clean and sober and I showed up because I knew she was on her last leg. And so me and my sister Cheryl slept in the I was going to I always say hotel room in the hospital room for the last three days. And I could um, hold her hand, touch her cheek, kiss her forehead. And the funny part about it is, you know, she was suffering so bad from pneumonia and uh, her breathing was awful, an awfulness that you don't want to hear come out of anyone's chest, especially your mom. But um, she was passing. And I said to Cheryl, Cheryl, I think mom just said something. And my sister said, Michael, she didn't say anything. She's on a lot of morphine. I said, Cheryl, get over here to this side of the bed. My mom opened up her eyes, <laughs> looked at me and Cheryl, Cheryl and I, and said, you two are funny people. And that was it. She died. And, you know, my mom always had this crazy brand of humor. And to be there for your mom on the, on, on the last leg of her being on this planet and for her to say, you two are funny people. Well, you know, that was complete because when I was born, she was the first person that held me. And when she died, me and my sister were the last people to hug her. And for all of that, I'm grateful. And I live my life like anything, if people don't realize everything is one day at a time. Whether you have an addiction problem or a sobriety problem or you're in a 12-step program or not, everything really is about this moment. It's about this moment that we're having together on Giant Pod. That's what it's about, right this minute. Of course, we went back in time to tell a story, to tell many stories. But, you know, 
I don't know where, where I'm going with any of this right now, except I live a clean and sober life. And beating death means that I drank and drugged a lot. I took my HIV meds with vodka when that was not recommended by any uh, 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 physician. And, you know, both times I almost died and I didn't. So the last part, the long-winded part of all this um, is that um, the beating death part comes from really surviving both those times when I had full-blown AIDS, almost died, and did not. And, you know, just to, just to close this little bit, you know, right now, I'm healthy. They can't find the virus. My viral load is what they call zero. Can't find it. Now, if that, after all those years of drinking and drugging and drinking and drugging, if that didn't kill me, man, A, I'm glad it didn't kill me because I feel I have more stuff to do on this earth. But um, that's the story of the book. And just to be shameless about the whole damn thing, you can go to Amazon.com. And I think worldwide, Amazon, you can pick up a paperback copy of I Am Michael Alago. I definitely would like to get my hands on a copy of that book, actually. Yeah, I'll send it to you, sure. Oh, that would be really great of you. Thank you. very. Yeah. I'd really appreciate that. Yeah. And I appreciate what you said about being, being in the moment. And, and I do appreciate the how honest and open you've been during this whole interview because there's been a couple of times where you know you've been close to to tears during this conversation i get the feeling that you know you do wear your heart on your sleeve and i'm just wondering whether that's always been the case or whether this is something you've had to learn to do is just you know live with this honesty with yourself and others oh. via the 12 step again this is not ego, but I've always been a kind person. I love people. Um, and uh, when, I, when I wasn't actively using, I always told the truth. Uh, people admire the truth. And when you tell the truth, uh, it gets to that person. And maybe you're giving something to someone that they didn't know uh, that they had inside of them. So, you know, the truth, as they say, the truth shall, sh shall set you free. And um, that's how I just live my life, being kind to one another. Um, because I always say kindness is a domino effect. You start being kind to somebody and it's just, it's a domino effect. And it just keeps rolling on and on and on. And, you know, some people think that's corny, but it's just part of the, living a, a true and honest life being kind to one another. And in that kindness, you always hope for that there's going to be a better world out there because of the kindness. So I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question or not. No, I, I think I think that's absolutely, uh, absolutely fine. And, and going back to you saying, you know, living in the moment, yes. it, it, you know, on, on the giant pod and everything and, and being mindful, there's a, there's a Buddhist streak or a streak of buddhism in that that mindfulness mindfulness um, of course but i i wanted to ask you genuinely and not not even really for the podcast but just as, as a personal you know on a personal level this past year and however many months now three months is going to have been incredibly hard 
on people who have been sober for a very long time and have been very successful in their recovery. And I imagine there's going to be many, many people who will, um, I don't know what were you looking for when you, when you, when you fall off the wagon and you, you start drinking again or using again, uh, re, oh God, what is it? When you have, when you have a relapse, when you relapse. Oh yeah. What what about relapsing? (laughs) So I was going to ask you if you've been, if you've been well this last year and a bit. Sure. Good question. Cause I think this is part of the interview and you can edit it any way you want, but you know, I lived through the AIDS pandemic had full blown and here we are. I lived through the crack pandemic because it certainly was. It was killing lots of people in New York. And uh, I, 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 I partook in that for seven years. Fast forward, I was sick and tired of my behavior, bad behavior that I thought at 47 years old, I need to get clean and sober. And I did because I asked for help. Now, fast forward once again, all of us, a lot of us, whether you're in a program or not, we're not used to just sitting at home in what they were calling a lockdown because that's not how we conduct our lives. We go to work, we go to concerts, we go grocery shopping, we take long walks, we socialize, and um, this has really, really screwed us up. Now, if you're asking specifically about a 12-step program, I think everybody who is in one is so grateful that Zoom came along because it's a little different than being next, literally next to someone in a 12-step room. You can't hug them. You can't shake their hand. But when you're serious about your program, you just show up. So I knew at 47 years old, 13 years ago, almost 14 now, that I was serious about my program and I wanted a new life. And I love the life that I had, fraught with all of those things. Um, But I knew I wanted a new life. And I wanted to be, I wanted to wake up in my own bed. I wanted to be responsible. I wanted you to know that if I said something, I'm going to show up for it. I was reliable. And um, that's a wonderful thing. So that going from being irresponsible and a no-show and a liar and a thief to someone that now people say, oh, you can ask Michael anything. And, you know, Michael shows up. I show up for life. I show up for you. I show up for the podcast. I show up for AA every day. And that helps me. And it helps everybody around the world who is suffering go to some place where you find relief. You know, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Zoom 12-step, Zoom therapy, Zoom uh, your work. You know, there's Zoom for everything. Like there's 12-step for everything. A-A-N-A-O-A-G-A. Everything, everything anonymous is out there for you to seek when you're serious about making yourself better. So, like I said, in this new life, I'm a totally changed person. I still, at 61 years old, have no patience. So I have to pray on that every day. But, you know, I'm a totally different person than back then um, when I was, uh, sadly, in the thick of the addiction. 
Big thank you to this week's guest, Michael Alago. We will leave all relevant links uh, in the show notes descriptions. We're also going to leave some links to the music of um, The Misfits and Metallica. In case you're listening and you haven't actually heard these bands, uh, which I'd be surprised if you haven't heard Metallica, but we're going to leave some links to this stuff as well in the show notes description. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Hey, if you've got a friend who's like a mega uh, Metallica fan or a big Misfits fiend or something, or just generally loves musical chats like this, then please send it to them. Word of mouth is a very, very powerful tool for helping podcasts grow, and uh, we love it here. If you want to follow this podcast on social media, you can it is at the giant pod on twitter and instagram you can follow my instagram it is andy underscore s1 s this podcast was produced by the headbanging harry williams and we will see you next week for another tasty podcast on the giant pod thank you very much